The America's National Parks Podcast is brought to you by L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean believes the more time you spend outside together, the better. That's why they've partnered with the National Park Foundation to help you find your park and get there with family and friends. With more than 400 national park sites in the U.S., there are beautiful surprises to be found in every corner of the country. There's probably one closer than you think. Be an outsider with L.L. Bean. My country owes me no debt. It gave me, as it gives every boy and girl, a chance. It gave me schooling, independence of action, opportunity for service, and honor. In no other land could a boy from a country village, without inheritance or influential friends, look forward with unbounded hope. Herbert Hoover The decade following World War I, the Roaring Twenties, was filled with opulence, wealth, and excess. The U.S. stock market went on an historic run, seeing the Dow Jones Industrial Average increase in value tenfold, peaking at 381.17 on September 3, 1929. Economist Irving Fisher proclaimed that stock prices had reached, quote, a permanently high plateau. Other advisors weren't so sure. Financial expert Roger Babson warned that a crash is coming and it may be terrific. After Babson's report, stocks began to decline, but many investors looked at lower prices as a buying opportunity. On September 20th, top British investor Clarence Hatchery and many of his associates were arrested for fraud and forgery, leading to a crash of the London Stock Exchange. American investors began to get skittish and the U.S. market became unstable. Periods of high-volume selling danced between rising prices and recovery. On October 24th, the market lost 11% of its value at the opening bell. Several leading Wall Street bankers decided to purchase shares in U.S. steel and other blue-chip stocks at a price well above current market value in order to inspire confidence in investors. The Dow recovered, closing down only about 7 points for the day. After a weekend break, investors facing margin calls decided to get out of the market, and the slide continued with a record loss in the Dow of just over 38 points on Monday, or 12.82%. The next day, which would become known in the history books as Black Tuesday, panic reached its peak. That morning, sellers were shouting, sell, sell, so loudly that no one heard the opening bell ring. In a half hour, they sold 3 million shares. As the day wore on, the Dow fell to 212 points, and the ticker tape that announced stock prices across the country was hours behind, so investors didn't know how much they were losing. They frantically called their brokers. When they couldn't get through, they sent telegrams. Western Union's volume of telegrams tripled that day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost an additional 30 points, for a total drop of 23% in two days. It continued to slide for the next three years and wouldn't return to the September 3rd peak until November 23rd, 1954.
Hoover had been president for less than a year when the market crashed, and the following years of his presidency would become known as the beginning of the Great Depression. He was swept out of the White House and out of public life as a scapegoat that would forever be saddled with the legacy of a presidential disaster. It's time to set the record straight. I'm Jason Epperson, and today on America's National Parks, the Herbert Hoover that maybe you didn't know, and his National Park legacy. It was actually Hoover who began to call it a depression. Before that, major stock market slides had been called panics, and though depression had been used before, Hoover just thought it sounded less alarming, so he pressed for the use of the term, and it stuck. But long before the Great Depression, this interesting and respected man, who would become the 31st President of the United States, was known as the Great Humanitarian, an American hero. Here's Abigail Trebu. Herbert Hoover was born in West Branch, Iowa, a crossroads town with its main street along the road connecting Davenport and Iowa City. By the time of Herbert's birth in 1874, West Branch was becoming a thriving rural center of opportunity due to the new railroad that connected the town to the emerging national economy. Hoover's parents, like most West Branch citizens, were Quakers. His father, Jesse, had built a blacksmith and wagon repair shop across from the family's new cottage, three years before young Bertie was born. Jesse advertised in the local newspaper saying, Horseshoeing and plow work a specialty. Also a dealer in all kinds of pumps. Prices to suit the times. Jesse was one of three blacksmiths in town. Between school, chores, and worship... The streams, fields, and woods around West Branch satisfied young Herbert's desire for exploration. He took an interest in rocks, minerals, gems, and coral fossils that he would polish on the grindstone. The town dentist, W.H. Walker, was also an amateur geologist with a collection of mineral specimens, coral, quartz, stuffed birds, mounted butterflies, and coins that he kept in his office cabinets. Hoover spent much of his spare time admiring Walker's collection, which helped spark his own interest in geology. In 1878, Herbert's father sold his blacksmith shop and the family's small cottage. They moved into a larger home a block south on Downey Street, Jesse opened a new business, selling machinery, pumps, and farm supplies on the corner of First and Main Street. Fire was an ever-present danger to downtown West Branch's closely built wooden buildings. To provide efficient firefighting apparatus, the town purchased a spring wagon and buckets and housed them in a shed. In 1879, the Volunteer Fire Department extinguished a blaze at Jesse Hoover's farm implement store, caused by a burning cauldron of hot pitch. Decades later, President Hoover admitted to starting the fire. 
While no one was looking, I undertook an experiment in combustion by putting a lighted stick in the cauldron. It produced a smoke that brought the town running and me speeding the other way in complete terror. Whenever I see a picture of volcanic eruption, I recall that terror. Young Herbert's life with his parents was cut short when his father died in 1880 at the age of 34. His mother then died in 1884, leaving Herbert, his older brother Theodore, and his younger sister May as orphans. In 1885, 11-year-old Herbert Hoover left on a train from the West Branch Depot. He traveled to the West, America's new frontier of opportunity, to live with his uncle Henry John Minthorne and his family in Newburgh, Oregon. Hoover never returned to live in West Branch, but kept a lifelong connection to the town of his birth. Hoover entered Stanford University in 1891, its inaugural year, despite failing all the entrance exams except mathematics. During his freshman year, he switched his major from mechanical engineering to geology after working for John Casper Branner, the chair of Stanford's geology department. He was a mediocre student, but heavily involved in the campus life. He won election as student treasurer, served as student manager of both the baseball and football teams, and helped organize the inaugural Big Game versus the University of California. When Hoover graduated in 1895, the country was in the midst of the Panic of 1893, and he initially struggled to find a job. He worked in various low-level mining jobs in the Sierra Nevada mountain range until he convinced a prominent mining engineer to hire him. After working as a mine scout for a year, Hoover was hired by a London-based company that operated gold mines in Western Australia. He traveled across the outback to evaluate and manage the company's mines, making today's equivalent of over $150,000 a year. Partly due to Hoover's efforts, the company eventually controlled half of gold production in Western Australia. In 1898, he was promoted to junior partner. An open feud developed between Hoover and his boss, Ernest Williams. But company leaders diffused the situation by offering Hoover a compelling position in China. While developing gold mines, he became deeply interested in Chinese history but quickly gave up on learning the language. After leaving the company in his 30s, Hoover worked as a London-based independent mining consultant and financier. Though he had risen to prominence as a geologist and mine operator, he focused his attentions on raising money, restructuring corporate organizations, and financing new ventures. He specialized in rejuvenating troubled mining operations, taking a share of the profits in exchange for his technical and financial expertise. By 1914, Hoover was a very wealthy man, with an estimated personal fortune equivalent to $102 million in today's dollars. When the First World War began in the summer of 1914, Herbert Hoover was a 40-year-old American millionaire living in London. He was now a successful mining engineer and global entrepreneur. But the outbreak of war marked an unexpected turning point in his life. 
My engineering career was over forever, he later wrote in his memoirs. I was on the slippery road of public life. In the first few weeks of fighting, tens of thousands of American travelers fled continental Europe to safety in England. When they arrived in London, many of these travelers found they were unable to cash their credit, obtain temporary accommodation, or find tickets for ships that were no longer crossing the Atlantic. Hoover and other Americans living in London organized an emergency relief that provided food, temporary shelter, and financial assistance to their fellow stranded countrymen. American ambassador to England Walter Hines Page and other key people in London quickly took notice of Hoover's organizational skills. In October 1914, Page asked Hoover to help with a much larger issue, the mass starvation and destruction in the small country of Belgium. Hoover founded and became chairman of a unique institution known as the Commission for Relief in Belgium. The CRB gave desperately needed food to more than 9 million Belgian and French citizens trapped between the German army and the British naval blockade. Following weeks of negotiation, Hoover won diplomatic protection for the CRB as a neutral organization. Great Britain agreed to let the food shipments pass through the blockade. Germany, in turn, promised not to take the food destined for helpless non-combatants. Under Hoover's direction, the CRB purchased rice from Burma, corn from Argentina, beans from China, and wheat, meat, and fats from the United States. Hoover and his staff worked with a network of 40,000 Belgian volunteers who handled the food distribution. Once inside the occupied country, the supplies had to be prepared in mills, dairies, and bakeries. The food then had to be distributed equitably to the anxious population scattered among more than 2,500 villages, cities, and towns. Saving lives in wartime was its own political minefield. Britons accused Hoover of being a German spy. Americans accused him of violating American neutrality laws. As the war progressed, German submarines started sinking relief ships, which added to the tensions between Germany and the United States. But Hoover's international business experience, organizational genius, and diplomatic prowess kept the CRB in business. In 1915, Hoover and his team even extended relief beyond Belgium to citizens caught behind the German battle lines in northern France. In all, the CRB's work encompassed a total area of nearly 20,000 square miles and fed approximately 11 million people through cash and food donations. Appreciative Belgians began to send back empty flour sacks to Hoover, embroidered with expressions of gratitude. In the spring of 1917, the United States entered the war, and President Woodrow Wilson appointed Hoover to immediately place in operation his plan for food control in the United States. From 1917 to 1918, Hoover served as the head of the U.S. Food Administration, a specially created wartime agency of the federal government. From his work with the CRB, Hoover had become an international hero. Since the start of the war, the Allied powers of Great Britain, France, and Italy had turned to the U.S. for food supplies, most notably wheat, which was vital to helping them win the war. 
But unless Americans substantially reduced their wheat consumption, they would have none left to send to the hard-pressed allies. From July 1916 to April 1917, the price of food in the U.S. had increased by more than 40 percent. Food riots erupted in working-class and immigrant neighborhoods in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. Hoover was often described by members of the American press as a food dictator. But the government often declared, food will win the war. The Food Administration under Hoover urged meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays on American families to reduce their consumption of key staples for the sake of the war effort. Propaganda posters proclaimed, Food is ammunition. Don't waste it. Be patriotic. Sign your country's pledge to save the food. Although World War I ended in 1918, Hoover continued his humanitarian work as the head of the American Relief Administration. Its main purpose was to alleviate the suffering of European children in the years following the war. Congress formed the ARA in February 1919 and gave it an operating budget of $100 million. The new agency played an important role stabilizing the newly independent state of Poland. To Poland in 1919, the name Woodrow Wilson spelled freedom, while the name of Herbert Hoover spelled life. During the two-year war that broke out between Soviet Russia and Poland in 1919, over 500,000 children benefited daily from the meals provided to them from the ARA. A catastrophic famine threatened 16 million people with starvation at its peak in the winter of 1921. The ARA was feeding nearly 11 million people a day in 19,000 kitchens. The ARA had delivered more than 4 million tons of relief supplies to 23 war-torn European countries. The lessons Herbert Hoover learned as a child of being of service to others, living a simple life, and always trying to be peaceful had never rung more true. His biographer George Nash wrote, Hoover was really the vanguard of the whole approach that has become associated with America in the last hundred years. Namely, that when there is a humanitarian tragedy in the world, whether from war or famine or revolution or a typhoon or earthquake, the Americans will be there to organize the relief. Herbert Hoover's reputation as an international hero led for calls to him to run for president in 1920. He is certainly a wonder, his future rival Franklin Delano Roosevelt wrote at the time. And I wish we could make him president of the United States. There could not be a better one. Hoover declined to seek nomination that year, but did run eight years later and was elected in a landslide victory. In 1928, the master of emergencies, as he was known, seemed the perfect man to manage the country's post-war prosperity and handle any problems that came its way. sure, Hoover's early response to the crash that caused the Great Depression was less than stellar. At first, he favored self-reliance over government intervention, even keeping the U.S. budget balanced as millions suffered. But as the Depression worsened, 
Many of his later attempts to stop the hemorrhaging became the seeds of Roosevelt's New Deal, which of course is credited for ending the Depression. Hoover and Congress approved the Federal Home Loan Bank Act to spur new home construction and reduce foreclosures, and the Emergency Relief and Construction Act, which included funds for public works programs such as dams and roads. He created the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, a federal agency with the authority to lend up to $2 billion to rescue banks and restore confidence in financial institutions. But in the election of 1932, Hoover was roundly defeated by his former ally, FDR, who spent the next decade calling it Hoover's Depression. Hoover's legacy as the great humanitarian is long forgotten by many. And there's another legacy that isn't often talked about, a legacy of national parks. During Herbert Hoover's presidency from 1929 to 1933, the land designated for new national parks and monuments increased by 40%. The President of the United States can establish a national park in two ways, by signing a bill from Congress establishing a national park, as Grant did for Yellowstone, the first national park in 1872, or by proclaiming a national monument under the authority of the Antiquities Act. The Antiquities Act allows presidents to proclaim national monuments from, quote, historic landmarks, historic and prehistoric structures, and other objects of historic or scientific interest that are situated upon the lands owned or controlled by the government. Theodore Roosevelt proclaimed Devil's Tower as the first national monument in 1906. In a message to Congress in 1930, Hoover wrote, The people have a vital interest in the conservation of their natural resources, in the prevention of wasteful practices. During his childhood in West Branch, Hoover developed a fondness for the outdoors, exploring creeks and woods, swimming, fishing, and sledding, and collecting rocks that spurred his interest in geology. While at Stanford, he conducted geological surveys of the Sierra Nevadas and the Ozarks, and as an adult, the outdoors were his escape. He remained an avid fisherman throughout his entire life. Hoover's accomplishments as Secretary of Commerce in the 20s included a new law to limit oil pollution of coastal waters protection of salmon fisheries in Alaska, standardization of lumber to eliminate waste of forest resources. And he became president of the National Parks Association in 1924. In accepting, he wrote, Recreation grounds and natural museums are as necessary to advancing our civilization as our wheat fields and factories. But his emphasis on developing national parks for recreation, which he felt would make the leisure time of American workers more productive and healthy, put him at odds with the more preservationist nature of the National Parks Association. He resigned as association president in 1925. Conservation was not a big part of Hoover's 1928 presidential campaign. He mentioned the subject only twice during speeches. His overall approach as president favored decentralization of Western public domain lands to the states, finding solutions to overgrazing, building dams, and developing water resources. Hoover also supported unifying conservation agencies by consolidating national parks and forests, even though the agencies that manage them have very different missions. But Hoover's policies also included expanding the size and number of national parks, and developing national parks was a huge part of his later depression-fighting toolkit. Hoover retained Horace Albright as the director of the National Park Service, who became aggressive about expanding the system. The Hoover administration formally opened two national parks established before his election, Grand Teton and Carlsbad Caverns. 
He also transferred bandolier in New Mexico from the Department of Agriculture and worked to create large new national parks in the east that would be established and opened later in the 30s and 40s, like Great Smoky Mountains, Mammoth Cave, Shenandoah, and the Everglades. By proclamation or executive order, President Hoover added to the lands of Aztec Ruins, Bandelier, Carlsbad Caverns, Bryce Canyon, Craters of the Moon, Hot Springs, Katmai, Pinnacles, Rocky Mountain, Scotts Bluff, Yellowstone, and Yosemite. Today, President Herbert Hoover is honored with his own National Park Service site, the Herbert Hoover National Historic Site in West Branch, Iowa, where you can walk in his childhood footsteps, visit his presidential library and museum, explore his birthplace cottage, the blacksmith shop, and the schoolhouse, or pay your respects at his gravestone. episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, with narration by Abigail Trebu. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You could also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. For more great American destinations, give us a listen at the Sea America Podcast. Season 3 is now available wherever you listen to this one. If you're interested in RV travel, find us at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and me as we travel the country with our three boys all over social media as our wandering family. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land was made for you and me Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit llbean.com to find great gear for exploring national parks.